For as long as Jen Miller Osborne can remember, she has been infatuated with puzzles. The thought process behind mining for an isolated piece and finding its greater purpose has always been fuel for her ambition. For Jen, she connects her love of puzzling to her responsibilities as the Deputy Director of Threat Intelligence for Unit 42 at Palo Alto Networks. With the company, she is tasked with identifying, preventing, and addressing some of the internet's most dangerous attackers. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Jen details everything that goes into the job and what her biggest security concerns are these days. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. This podcast is created by the team at mission.org. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of IT Visionaries. We have a special guest in a special place. Jen, what's going on? I am happy to be here at RSA. I'm super happy the weather this year is much better than last year. Yeah, it is a great day in sunny San Francisco. Uh, we are somewhere above RSA um, at the uh, what Virgin Hotel. What's it called? The Virgin uh, Virgin Hotel San Francisco, um, which is a fun location. And, uh, and it's going to be a fun couple of days. So we wanted to sit down with you and talk about Unit 42 at Palo Alto Networks. We um, had John Davis on. He was incredible sharing all sorts of fun stuff uh, from his military career. We've had him on twice, actually. Uh, and he mentioned Unit 42. And uh, we kind of wanted to, uh, to, to do the proverbial double click into this. So we're going to get into all that. Um, and your career. So first, how did you get started in technology? So I had a strange path into technology. I originally had a full scholarship for genetic engineering to a private college. And I got there and I realized that I really hated spending 13 hours in a lab doing the same thing over and over and over again. But I really enjoyed the knowledge. So I started with uh, foreign languages in elementary school And I was aware that the military, particularly the Air Force, had a strong program of linguists. So not knowing what else I wanted to do, I joined the Air Force for Mandarin Chinese. And I kind of figured that, you know, I'd figure out what I wanted to do later. But I was lucky enough that I was working still with the government when the government started getting more into the computer space. And as someone who is also a computer geek, I again volunteered thinking, hey, this sounds fun. And here I am 20 years later and it's a career now. (laughs) So it all worked out well. Linguistics is really a funny field, and we were kind of talking about this before because it seems like everybody who goes into Air Force linguistics has some sort of interesting career path. Is it something about like, is it all people who like puzzles? Is it like, you know, <laughs> cryptography? Like what, what's the kind of common thread? What makes, uh, what makes linguists um, so interesting? Because it seems like you all are. I think a lot of it, honestly, is our enjoyment of puzzles, whether you're learning a language that you're speaking or whether you're learning a language, the programming language, or whether you're doing thread analysis, you're always putting kind of a picture together. There are certain places, certain pieces can go and some are interchangeable, but you have to be able to take that step back to actually figure it out. And a lot of us, especially a lot of us that stay in the career field, that tends to be 
one of our favorite things to do. Like as a team, one of the things we do a lot at an offsite are the puzzle rooms yeah. because we're basically professional puzzle breakers Yeah, and we have a ton of fun with those, but you, you see, tend to find that a lot in the community. It is one of those things like as a kid, you you don't necessarily think all of those things are going to add up to a career, right? Where you're Definitely. like, I just kind of <laughs> like video games or I like, you know, whatever it was. Um, but you know, so many times when we interview folks on IT Visionaries, that's exactly what you get, right? It's like, hey, I was interested in games when I was a kid. It got me interested in the computers and, you know, now I'm a CIO or something. Well, there's so many career fields that exist now and that continue to be made and be created that, you know, they didn't do this 10 years ago. They didn't do this five years ago. You know, they might not even have existed two or three years ago. It's there's so much variety in the space at this point. So tell me a little bit about your current role uh, with Palo Alto Networks and, and specifically Unit 42. Sure. So I'm the deputy with Unit 42. Um, I focus a lot on our publishing process and the kind of things that we publish. So as a team, we are a dedicated group of threat researchers within the company. And our focus is all attacks, basically. We'll look at everything from botnets to things that are typically uh, espionage attributed to criminal activity. So we kind of run the gamut in the things that we focus on. One of our goals is to always be publishing unique new threat intel. So we focus on things that are current and actionable. And our goal in publishing them publicly is to not only make all of our customers aware of what the attack landscape looks like and what's going on currently and to let them know they're protected, but also so that we share that data as widely as widely as possible. So with competitors, you know, with anyone who has access to the internet, because we want people to be able to access that data to have an understanding of what their kind of threat posture actually looks like for them, for them as a company, for them as an individual, kind of run the whole line. Was it called Unit 42? So <laughs> there's a funny story behind this. When we were originally forming the team, my boss and grand boss at the time, saying Palo Alto Network's threat intelligence team is difficult. Sure. Especially if you start to say it repeatedly. And a number of us have military backgrounds, and it also does not lend itself well to an acronym. Yep. <laughs> so at that point, we really wanted something that would be easier to say and be a little more Pants fun, and more catchy. <laughs> exactly. It, it just, it doesn't work. A number of us are sci-fi geeks, which is, which is also common kind of in the field. And the joke became the 42 comes from Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh. And the number is the answer to the ultimate question. So it's supposed to be the answer to life, the universe and everything. So this became kind of a fun name for a threat, a threat research team, right? Because our goal is to answer questions. And the unit became more of a reference to the military background that a lot of us had. And then it just kind of stuck. I used to poke at uh, my boss all the time saying it was a bit of a lofty goal, saying, you know, naming us after the answer to everything. <laughs> but that sets the bar. I, it's good. That's so fun. I didn't know that. What has been some of the things um, that really kind of blew your mind that you didn't see coming from uh, from some of the analysis that you all have done? Especially with some of the more recent analysis in the cloud space that we've done. We re recently published a cloud trends report, and some of those statistics were scary from, from a security perspective. Yeah. So when you say cloud trends, like what what are you looking at? What's the research set that you're looking at for that, for something like that? It's broad, but it's bounded more by time, if that makes sense. So it's the things that we found that were the most interesting, the most concerning over a period of a couple of months. 
because these are meant to be a periodical. Yeah. So it's kind of an update as the current space. So the one we just published, we were the focus of the scary things where we found about 200,000 infrastructure as a code templates, just totally unsecured. And those are things that are very commonly used in the cloud environments because it makes it really easy for a DevOps team to spin up an application and things in the in their cloud environment. The problem is there's not a lot of security built into that initial rollout. So what the teams need to do afterwards is do kind of the security due diligence, make sure things are patched, make sure things aren't open to the internet. But we're seeing um, that message not necessarily getting across. People are assuming too much on the side of the cloud provider, and they're forgetting that they're also responsible for some part of security. That's interesting. That, and I think it's one of the things we talked about with John, if I if I remember correctly, is like, where does the job of the cloud provider, you know, end and, exactly. and, and you begin? So were you, when you're looking at this, were you looking at all businesses? Were you looking at nation states? Were you looking at like enterprise companies? Like what was the mix of- This was basically just using Shodan to scan all cloud globally mm. to see what we could find. Interesting. So on top of that, we also found about 34% or so of these instances weren't encrypting their data, which is very unfortunate. And about 60% of them also weren't logging. And if you were setting up cloud environments, two things you absolutely should do are have logging enabled and the data should be encrypted, especially at rest. Those are just, those are best practices outside of cloud environments. And they just, they haven't quite made the transition that that needs to still happen in the cloud as well. So if you're a CIO and, or CTO listening to this and you just heard that, you know, 60% of people are not logging, what what's the action that they could take uh, to make sure, to, to do an audit to make sure that that's happening? They could honestly run the same Shodan script that we ran against just their own network. Oh, really? Yep. If they, they should have, if they have an in-house IT team, they should be able to relatively... Some of these are pretty simple to, to track down just by a simple, just by a network scan. Hmm. Interesting. If they don't have that kind of team, then they should talk to their cloud provider or, you know, whoever their comp service company is, like whether they're Palo Alto Networks customers or not, that should, if they have devices that are intended to also protect their cloud instances, they should contact them as well. That's really fascinating. That's so interesting that it's kind of like a snapshot in time when you're looking at these things. It makes so much sense, obviously, now that you say that, but I kind of always thought that it was like like broader term, like long period of time, kind of like looks at certain like large scale trends that would be interesting. But you're totally right that it's like the, that specific moment in time, it's like, you know, someone's security, the world security posture changes, mm -hmm. I don't know, whatever. I mean, literally every second. Yes. Um, so doing something that was from four years ago might be relevant for certain in certain ways, but, uh, you know, the anecdotal nature of it. But uh, it's not going to tell you much about the environment today. Sometimes it can be surprising. We actually published recently on a vulnerability that we initially saw used last year. And we came across some threat actors using it again. And just out of curiosity, uh, one of our malware reversers ran a scan to see how many vulnerable servers he could find on the internet. And we ended up coming up with over 20,000. Whoa. And it's for an older vulnerability, which had been documented as being exploited. So what we did, and it was this is the first time we've done this ever. This is our biggest ever outreach. What we did is we broke them out by country and we reached out to every for every country's cert to let them know these sites were vulnerable 
to this particular vulnerability in a large part because some of them had like .gov in some ways in the URL, URL which was concerning. Yeah. And we've gotten a lot of good feedback from that so far. We've definitely had people respond that they're taking action on it and they've contacted them. We're about to run a scan again um, this week, actually, just to see how much of an effect that had overall. But we it took a lot of effort, but we notified, I think, 156 different countries. Certs. Wow. Yep. And some of them definitely, and we did get responses. So that was, that was great to see. Wow. That's got to feel good. Yeah. That's, that's a big reason why we publish our threat research publicly is because we want it to be as broadly useful and help as many people as possible. We've taking that data and how you use it in protections. That's what we view as the, the quote unquote secret sauce. The knowledge of it itself isn't what will keep you safe. It's understanding and then being able to apply defenses against it. So you have a master's science in, in information technology, right? Yes. So how have you seen IT kind of change with security uh, over the past you know, handful of years? Because it seems like, you know, in all the conversations that we have on this show, everything is changing. The role of the CIO is changing. The role of IT is changing. The role of security and how that's done is changing. From that perspective... Uh, from the schoolhouse kind of perspective to now, how, how do you see some of those changes happening? It has changed tremendously. The traditional IT of yore, where it's, you know, a sys admin sitting somewhere and, you're, and they're, you're only putting in tickets, that used to be IT. That was the scope of the field where more kind of sys admins, managers, network managers, that kind of thing. And, you know, within the past 10 years, it went from that being what with quote unquote IT to this massive field of people that were now defense and protection and all of the other devices and things that go into that. You had red team and blue team starting up to understand attacking networks. You have people doing threat intel research and putting together those bigger pictures of, you know, who is doing this and why are they doing this and how are they doing this? You know, and you go back 10, 20 years and none of those things existed. And now you have people that focus on cloud. Again, that didn't exist as a thing. And you have specialists in different areas there. And that's only going to continue. I think one of the things that people in tech tend to both love and hate about it is the constant change. Yeah. Because you're constantly forced to be learning new things and moving in different directions. Yeah. Do you think um, like some of the research and the things that you're doing now are kind of like enlightening where, where focuses should be looking like, are like, are how forward looking is your team at trying to see, like, you know, what's on the next horizon? We don't look at things from a predictive component. Mm -hmm. In some cases, we can just because we'll have been watching a set of activities, so we can reasonably make the assumption that they'll follow along with some of the same patterns. But that's also the kind of thing that can get you in trouble as an analyst because you always have to be able to view the activity with fresh eyes to make sure it is the same group. It's not a group doing a false flag kind of operation because one of the downsides or quote unquote downsides to publishing threat intel publicly is that it makes it easier for attackers to kind of adapt some of those tactics or sort of try to pretend they're someone that they're not. So confirmation bias is something we as uh, researchers have to be very, very careful with. You're very careful with saying researchers. And the way that you look at research and and findings is is very specific. Mm -hmm. For like CIOs and CTOs and people out there, 
that don't have researchers, that don't have a research team, or maybe they have some capacity, but maybe it's not mm-hmm. as robust as the great Unit 42. <laughs> How do you think that other folks can go about doing research that's helpful for their business if they don't have, you know, kind of that, the, the bandwidth necessarily? That is where I would expect they would hire a company, honestly, whether yeah, it's a good point. us or a competitor to provide that kind of feedback and understanding of what their threat landscape looks like based on, you know, their vertical and their location and kind of their operations. Because realistically, it's the only kind of place you're going to get that, yeah. that kind of translation. We try when we publish things to have to up-level the language so that it makes it more available to people that aren't threat researchers reading it. Because, you know, we would like other people to understand it, not just not just the technical people. So we do make a, an effort to try to have our blogs also accessible. Because we agree that is definitely, that's a big component of actually effectively sharing research is making it as widely digestible as possible. You know, yeah. publishing just for other researchers isn't, isn't our primary goal. And I'm curious, like, how for you and in, in your career in being a research, you know, there's probably, um, you know, listeners out there that, that love research, that love doing, uh, that would love to, to do more of it. Um, you know, you have kind of like traditional schoolhouse research versus kind of like this in-house, in-company kind of approach, which is two kind of very different things. I'm curious, like why you selected kind of this route? I'm not really very academia focused. And that was kind of what I learned early on. I'm also not the best at teaching. I'm good at learning. I'm not the best at, I'm not the best at communicating it to others. Like that is just not my skill set. So it makes more sense for me to stay in the research component where I can do more written explanations versus kind of being up in front of people. And academia has its own, you know, research requirements and things like that. And they tend to be a little bit further away from the things that I like to focus on, which are current real world active attacks and less uh, theoretical. Yeah. And that's, and that's kind of where I was going with it. It seems like one of the huge advantages is that you get to access a ton of different um, you know, organizations, whether it's, you know, um, companies or nation states or big and small, whatever it is. And it seems like there's just such an advantage to be able to look at all of those different things and, uh, and kind of look holistically rather than kind of, like you said, from a theoretical standpoint, like, you know, at the end of the day, the rubber meets the road with a gal or a dude that are, you know, out there that have to figure out, the strategy for securing, you know, their cloud environment. Like exactly. it's a person whose job it is, you know, exactly. it's not, it's not a theory. Right. <laughs> um, and so it seems like empowering those people to be able to make decisions is, is critical, like in, like in real time. Yes, exactly. You, but when it, sometimes when we get these theoretical questions, it's just, yes, that could happen. I could also walk outside and get hit by a bus. Like after this interview, sometimes they just get a little bit too far. And to make realistic, rational decisions, you have to be able to base it on actual evidence that holds up like the scientific method. And if you can't, then you need to go back and look at your research again. Let's talk bad guys for a second, bad guys and gals. What are you seeing from the, uh, you know, we know that uh, the good folks always need to stay one step ahead or hopefully many (laughs) steps ahead of the bad folks. Um, what are you seeing in terms of like any trends, um, that are kind of happening right now? Cloud wise, one of the big trends we're seeing is crypto jacking and crypto mining. Most of the malicious activity we're seeing directly as cloud instances is specifically just to mine a lot, usually Monero. 
uh, which is interesting. We did find the first ever worm. We called it Graboid that was doing that with cloud environments <laughs> Great name. Uh, earlier in the year. And that was all it was for. It was just to spread it just to spread itself around just to mine Monero. So that's mm. but that's largely what we're seeing in the cloud space. Um, in the kind of directed attack space, in some cases, we're seeing more and more organizations starting to use public source tools, which is common. And in a lot of ways, they start adopting it because it makes it harder to differentiate between campaigns. But we're not seeing everyone do that. Some of the groups that we track that tend towards custom malware and writing their own, they're still largely focused on that. But we're seeing more and more in some spaces where they're getting into the, just the free tools they can download online because why wouldn't you? It's easy to use. And there's usually some sort of documented instructions. But it's largely that and a lot of once um, post-intrusions, a lot of the what they quote unquote call living off the land. So a lot of tools that are kind of dual use sort of tools, we'll see them use. But the as protections are getting a lot better, it's also becoming easier and easier to detect those because we have, you know, things on the endpoint and things that are logging and things that are looking for those behaviors that these tools typically do, like when they're trying to authenticate to a bunch of resources that, that they necessarily don't have access to, or, you know, they're trying to log into a bunch of different things or do like a, run something like Mimi Cats to download passwords. Mm. So in some ways we're seeing them try to get more complicated and hide a little bit more, but defenses are definitely getting ahead of them where we're, we're detecting a lot more of that and we're able to stop it. I want to talk tools and, and playbooks that you created, Unit 42, for a second. I'm just curious, you know, for, for our listeners who, who have never checked it out, uh, we'll link it up in the show notes. Um, but, at, like, how do you create one of these tools or a playbook? Like, what does the creation process go from, like, hey, we just did all this research, <laughs> and then, like, well, now we got to do it? So we actually have our own internal dev team, and we have a tool internally that we use where we can track it and build them out from there. Uh, it's based against the MITRE attack framework, which has become more and more of an industry standard. And we also have a sticks to feed from it as well. But the outgrowth was, so blogs are great, but especially if I'm not the threat analyst, what does that mean for my security posture? Like what did the, what did the actors actually do? What would I have needed to be able to see or detect in my security appliances to stop that attack? So that's where the playbooks have come in, where we're highlighting this is, you know, this was the initial spear phishing. This is the malware that was dropped. This is what the C2 looks like. So those network kind of artifacts where people could actually go back and search for them. And that way you doesn't require an analyst reading through our blog, picking those individual data pieces out because they're there. But now we've laid them out across the attack lifecycle, exactly what it was and the technical components to it. So it's meant to help people better be able to map their defenses. And it's also one of our long-term projects is to be able to better understand where most of the overlaps are. Hmm. So spear phishing is a great example because almost everyone uses that. So that's something you really need to make sure you focus on that protections against because every motivated criminal, for any reason, they all use spear phishing. You start to say, let's say a lot of people use Mimikaz or some of those other tools versus custom. It can give you a way of prioritizing, especially when budgets can be tight, across the groups that are likely to target us or that we know target us, here are the primary ways they do things. So those are the ones that you would prioritize detecting because they do them almost all of the time. 
instead of putting a ton of money and effort into the one-off you saw once that they, they never do again. So it's it's both to be able to answer those questions, would I be protected? And then to be able to make those security decisions, you know, where should I focus my money and time? Where would it be best used? Who are the types of people that are looking, like, do, is, it, is it a mix of, you know, junior associate level folks all the way up to like C-level executives? Like, who are the people that... Uh, that kind of find and, and leverage these playbooks? Is it a team? The playbooks tend to be people that have threat intelligence teams or that have some more developed uh, postures. There are, especially when the CIOs or, CIS, or CISOs are more technical, they tend to find them useful as well because it helps them inform where they might have gaps or things to look at. There is consumable and usable if we've been able to figure out how to make them. If we ever get suggestions for a way to make them more consumable or easier to use, we'll definitely take that um, under advisement, but this is the simplest way we've been able to, to organize it so far. Okay. Let's get into our lightning round questions. Before that, if, if anyone wants those playbooks that we were talking about or any of the resources, um, just go to unit42.paloaltonetworks.com. Um, that's where you can find it. And we'll link it up in the show notes. Um, great resources. Let's get into our lightning round. These questions are fast and easy. Just like the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. We were talking about cloud cloud platforms earlier. What a perfect tie-in uh, to the amazing folks at, at Salesforce. The red line through software, you know, one of the one of the OGs of cloud. Um, we love Salesforce. You will too. Go to salesforce.com slash platform to learn more. Lightning round questions. Jen, are you ready? Yes. Number one. What app on your phone is the most fun? Wizard United. What is that? That is a Harry Potter game. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> and it's great around here. There's so many people in San Francisco. If you aren't playing it, download it. There's stuff everywhere. Who's that by? Niantic. The same? Yes, it's yeah. the Niantic one. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't realize it was called. So we interviewed Phil, their CTO, oh, yeah? on IT Visionaries. For our listeners who haven't checked it out, go listen to that. It's an awesome one. It was like right before that was about to come out. I heard it's <laughs> awesome, though. So it's great. Oh, we have, my boss and I both play and my husband plays. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite recent book or podcast that you've read or listened to that you enjoyed? Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. Yes, it was Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. Check it out. What is your favorite thing to cook or eat? I'm not a good cook, so I very rarely cook. But one of my favorite things to eat is seafood, particularly oysters. And, I'm for, and I live in Maryland now, so crabs, because, you know, of old bang crabs. <laughs> Hidden talent or passion? We talked about the language thing, but probably the language thing. Other than that, I, uh, I'm on the board of a family crisis center. So I just spend a oh, lot cool. of time volunteering with that. How many languages do you speak? Fluently, currently only two, roughly five. I think your roughly is probably better than <laughs> I'm working with Duolingo like, to try to get the other ones up to speed. So English, Mandarin, mm -hmm. and then what are the other ones? German, Spanish, and French. What are you most excited about for the future of technology? I'm really excited in a lot of the areas where it's going to help make people's lives easier and safer. So self-driving cars, once that's actually a thing, I think will make a massive difference, A, because you can sleep now. But just that level of, I mean, we've all driven here and around the States, like taking that level of unsafety out would be nice. And a lot with, especially in the medical community, I think there's a lot of space there for a lot of good to be done moving forward. Best advice for a first time researcher. 
There are actually a lot of resources online. You can find a lot of free training that didn't exist even five years ago. Uh, I would recommend looking at blogs such as ours to kind of get a read through, especially when we focus on some of the technical aspects. So if you're new to reversing or to threat research, we could try to kind of spell out that highlight the, the important data points and how things were gone. And network. On Twitter, InfoSec is pretty active. Um, there's a ton of local groups. There's a ton of groups for minorities and for women. Uh, and they're usually, most of them are very active and very supportive. And they'll run separate CTFs. They'll run separate training. You know, they're happy to answer questions. It's for the most part, InfoSec is a very, very welcoming field. And we're happy to have people get in and try to, you know, help them get into a spot where, you know, they like their job as much as we do. Well, that's it. That's all we got for today, Jen. Thanks for, for stopping by. That was fun. Awesome. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce Customer 360 platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experience, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Mm-hmm.